if you'd like to turn with me this morning, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 10. Wow, what an exciting year. It's well underway now, isn't it? We've, um, we've already had announcements, uh, engagements, uh, babies coming. We've got uh, a growing eldership team. We've got a fantastic Alpha and Alpha Plus course uh, well underway. We've got visiting speakers coming. We've got exciting uh, events, social justice happening. We've got all sorts of different things uh, going on in the life of the church. And it's really exciting to be part of that uh, together. And what a fantastic morning we've already had. Uh, Thank you to Shirley and the team for leading us. Thank you to Leslie and your team uh, for the creative worship that's been going on. God has really been at work. And I just get a real sense that God... God's message for us this morning is that he loves us. There's lots of different things that we could look at uh, about what Christian living is and how to, uh, how to do life and the practicalities of relationship and all sorts of things like that. But overwhelmingly, loud and clear, God has been speaking to me this morning about the fact that he loves us. He sought us out, he called us by name, and he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we would know a personal relationship with him. And so this morning we're looking at Nehemiah, and in case you don't know much about Nehemiah or who he is, um, uh, a long, long time ago, uh, before Jesus was born, uh, but after King David... Um, the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah and Israel had been attacked. And the city of Jerusalem, which was God's holy city, was destroyed and in rubble. And um, they'd been destroyed initially, they'd been attacked initially by the Babylonians uh, who'd conquered the land and scattered all the people of God. And then the Persians came along and they conquered the Babylonians. But the people of God were still in captivity. And this is where we meet Nehemiah. You see, at this point, at the start of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is um, the cupbearer to the king uh, of Persia. It's a very privileged position, uh, but he's still um, in captivity. Nonetheless, he's, he's still not where he wants to be. And God has broken his heart for the land of Israel, the land of Judah, and for God's people. And uh, this is the miraculous story of how Nehemiah is sent back to the city of Jerusalem Uh, to bring about uh, its restoration and to rebuild the walls, gathering the people of God as he does. And so we pick up the story today um, at a point in the story where uh, the city walls have now been rebuilt uh, and the people are gathered together in one uh, place all together. In chapter 9, the people have have come before God and they've confessed of their sins. and they're signing a document to declare their loyalty and commitment to the God of Israel. And it's here in chapter 10 that we're going to continue the story. So if you want to turn with me, we're just going to read. I'm going to paraphrase ever so slightly because it's quite a long passage. So here we go, verse 1. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Andy, Shirley, Dave and Marvesh, the worship team, the sound team, the kids workers, the creche workers, the hospitality team, the setup team, the pack down team, the visual team, all the children and kids work, all the youth who were napping, 
all the youth who weren't napping. Good morning, guys. The people on the left, my left, the people on the right. Okay, everybody, they were all there together. One big family, the people of God. And in verse 28, the rest of the people too. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. Together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. All those now joined their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and by themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. Verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. I really like that bit. I've got my uh, son's husbands already, my daughter's husbands already picked out. Um, when a neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and the burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at the approved festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. Verse 36. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles from the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. And then finally, we will not neglect the house of our God. Wow, what an amazing line to finish on. We will not neglect the house of our God. What an incredible piece of scripture. A, a, a people corporately gathered together, recommitting themselves to God and the upkeep of the temple. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Lord God, Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to freely read and study your word. We thank you that scripture reveals to us exactly who you are and who we are in you, Father. Please help us now as we look at this passage to hear your voice through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, reveal yourself to us, we pray. Amen. On the face of it, this passage 
uh, seems to be a list of things that the people of God must do. Mostly a list of things that they must give, uh, from money to crops. And to a certain extent, that is what's happening. But there's a little bit more to it than that. It's about a people recommitting themselves uh, to a life of passionate worship to God. A people who recognize, as it says in, in verse 35, the importance of taking responsibility. In this context, for the temple, uh, but through that, responsibility for their relationship with God. They were literally giving their labor and their life to God. And in our context, God no longer dwells in a physical temple, but instead he dwells in each of us. We are the new temple. And like the people in this passage, we must take responsibility for our own hearts, our lives, and our relationship with God. Because together, we are his body. We are his people. We are the church. And so the responsibility that they took in Nehemiah extends beyond this passage into our lives for ourselves. To care um, for the growth and life of the church, what she is called to do in God's big kingdom plans, plans that care for the poor, that love the lost, and bring God's life to a lost and dying world. A world that used to include us, but now we have been set free. And really the invitation this morning is to each of us, will we do that? Without distraction, without being pulled away by temptation or the passing pleasures of sin, will we passionately follow him? Uh, And as I said before, um, my wife and I, we've been here since 2004. And back in September of 2004, there were thousands of new first-year students arrived here in Teesside at the university. One of them was me, one of them was Miriam, and one of them was a friend of mine who, for the purposes of this morning, we'll call Bob. He is real, in case you're wondering, but we're going to call him Bob. Over the next few years, teenagers became students. Some of them became adults. (laughs) Still trying, eh, Sean? Uh, (laughs) A lot of finding yourself happened. For most, it was about deciding what kind of person you were going to be. And a little bit of studying happened at the same time, too. But my friend Bob, as lovely as he was, was not doing great at life. He missed a lot of his lectures. He missed some of his meals. In fact, he missed most normal people's bedtimes. You see, Bob would stay up all night playing computer games, and then he would sleep all day, wondering why it was that he was failing his course. See, life was passing him by, one lie-in after another. And things got so bad that Bob eventually asked me to set the parental controls on his computer game to restrict how many hours he could play for. You see, Bob was distracted. Okay? It wasn't that he didn't love God. He did. It wasn't that he wasn't a nice person. He, he was and is. It wasn't even that he was a lousy friend. Um, he was and still is one of my best friends. But the problem was, Bob wasn't taking responsibility for his life or his relationships 
with others or God. Distracted by the things of this world, mostly his computer games, he was living for himself and effectively was missing out because of it. Now, fortunately for Bob, that was the low point. He moved on from there with a, with a little help, a lot of prayer and some community. He moved on until eventually, a few years later, along came Bobette. <laughs> now, in case you don't fully understand the name, perhaps English isn't your first language, Bobette is a girl. Uh, and now suddenly, Bob was focused. He'd seen a glimpse of his future. Choices about healthy living, which he'd never considered before, were suddenly his top priority. The friend who would pull a solitary lettuce leaf out of his McDonald's, and really, it's a token lettuce leaf anyway, people. He was now cooking his own meals with vegetables in. And worse more, because I was his guest, I was obliged to eat them. Uh, but Bob was transformed. He was purposeful. He was deliberate. He was focused. You could have said he was disciplined. He'd even cut his hair and bought new clothes. He was living for a purpose. You see, like many young Bobs, when he met his Bobette, his life changed forever. If that was Bob's response to Bobette, imagine how much more our lives change when we are captivated by God's love for us. Because his love is significantly better than Bobette's. To all the Bobettes in the room, I'm sorry. I'm not dissing you, but God's love is better. His power to transform is greater. And his, his plan, his purposes, what he's calling us to be focused on, is significantly better than healthy living and clean hygiene. Although those things are important. Okay. Bob had been living differently. It wasn't as a contractual obligation or to observe a list of rules, but as a heartfelt response to his new relationship. And at some point, no matter how much we think we might have nailed it, we're all a little bit hopeless at life from time to time. And, but the good news is, we all have an opportunity to respond to a relationship, to respond to an even greater love than Bobette's a life-changing love, a life and a love that transforms the way we think. Originally, you see, Bob had not given two thoughts to living healthily. But suddenly, living healthily mattered to Bobette, and so it mattered to Bob. It became part of his everyday. His thinking had been transformed. It had been renewed. As he thought differently, so too did he live differently. And Paul in Romans 12 verse 2 says this. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Good, pleasing, perfect. He has a will for each of us. He has a plan for each of us. 
but we can only discover that through the transforming of our lives and the renewing of our minds. And it gets even better than that. You see, as we take our responsibility responsibility for God more seriously, we encounter more and more of him. As our passion for him increases directly as our relationship with him grows. And the great news is that we're not alone in this endeavor. God has sent his Holy Spirit to us and he dwells in us daily. And like the Israelites, we stand together in community with one another, with, with God, each with a different part to play. And so from this passage on this subject of responsibility, there are four things really that I believe God wants to talk to us about today. And the first is responsibility is about identity. The second, responsibility needs community. Then responsibility has purpose. And then finally, responsibility is proactive. So, responsibility is about identity. No people in history should have been more clear of their identity in God than the people of Israel. And yet, no one has ever forgotten this so completely and repeatedly as they did. As people of the law, they understood absolutely that the root of their problem was not what they did, but it was in the condition of their hearts. And when they find that their identity is not in what they have or haven't done, but is in fact in God, it's then that they repent and recommit themselves to him. And that's where it all starts for us too. By the compassion of Jesus, who laid down his own life for us, so that all the wrong things that we have done would be washed away, so that we could stand before God, blameless and made new, so that we could enjoy a relationship with him, so that we could find our identity in the one that not only loves, but actually is love. And all we have to do in return is repent, turn away from our sinful lives and turn ourselves towards him. This is the very foundation of Christian living and a life of responsibility towards God that we would know absolutely before anything that we do or say that God loves us, he accepts us and as Raj said the other day, he delights in us completely and his desire is that we would know him and know his joy as our joy. The right response then to this free gift is to commit ourselves entirely to him because we love him and because he loves us. And and without a secure identity in his love and grace, Christian living would be just a list of rules through which we try to better ourselves, eventually to fail and fall short. Our striving will be no never-ending And it would only result in judgment of ourselves and those around us. So responsibility must begin from a place of grace, from a place of acceptance, from a a place of security, from a place of love. So it starts with identity. If we don't know who we are in God, we're going to struggle. 
Responsibility needs community. I chose that word very carefully. I could have chosen a whole number of words, but responsibility needs community. And I don't think it was by mistake that they stood together in unity to commit themselves to God in this passage. Being together is one of the very things that enriches life. Uh, Even the most mundane tasks can seem exciting when done with, with, with friends, when done together. Good friendship supports us when times are tough. You know, the lyrics of the song may well be when the going gets tough, the tough get going, but they're wrong. You see, when the going gets tough, it's when weak, vulnerable people, together with their friends who point them to Jesus, they lean on God and he helps them to be tougher still. God never intended for us to be alone. He declared that right at the very beginning of creation in the book of Genesis. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. And he was talking about community and friendship. He was talking about family. We rarely celebrate our good times on our own. So why do we think we can make it through the tough times on our own? The Christian life without community is a really dangerous place to be. Like most children who find, who find their first experience of love in the family, God demonstrates his love for us in this same context. Through his family, right here, this family, his church, he demonstrates his love for each and every one of us. And we're invited to belong, to be part of it. And in belonging, we invite others to belong with us. It's not perfect, but it does support us. It shares, it provokes. We need God's family as much as God's family needs us. And the word community is not complete without the word unity. When I read this, uh, that came as quite a, a shocking revelation to me. But we are called the body of Christ. And as Paul says in Corinthians, each part of the body is equally important and equally valued. God was speaking to me just about this this morning. You know, I was stood just worshipping over here by myself, thinking, no, thank you, I don't want to go and get my hands messy. I don't want to go and take part in this creative uh, worship. I'd like to just stay where I'm comfortable. And Leslie sought me out and came and painted my hand. <laughs> and my handpin was part of the canvas, the beautiful canvas that God's building together with each of us here as the body of Christ, as his church, as his beloved bride. And I didn't really want to be part of it. I felt like I couldn't take part. But Leslie sought me out and included me in. And God just spoke to me really clearly in that moment. Matthew, you've got a part to play. I called you by name. I know the number of hairs on your head, as few as they may be. But I sought you out. I've called you for purpose and I'm building you into this family because you have an equal part to play. And just as he said that for me, he's saying that over each of you today. Um, But you know, without unity, the people in Nehemiah 
would have never built the wall. They would have never succeeded in the task that had been set before them. You know, unity actually kept them alive. I don't know if you quite realize that when reading through the earlier chapters. They, their lives were at risk. And, and how did they respond? They responded by coming together and saying, okay, we're going to protect one another. We're going to protect the families. We're going to protect the weak. We're going to work together. We're all going to take our part. In unity, they protected the body, the family, and together they got the job done. And, you know, there's a few things that can destroy unity within the body of Christ. Um, And the first are people who don't think enough of themselves. A little bit like me earlier when I didn't want to take part. I didn't want to be part of it. I thought I didn't have a contribution to make to that canvas. But these people are a bit like a foot, which is part of the body, and they decide that it's not needed. It's got no place, and so they they chop themselves off and go off and exclude themselves from the body. It's painful. It hurts. But you know what? Suddenly the body can't function properly without that foot. And worse still, it's likely to get an infection. And even with modern medicine, death from that infection is still possible. All simply because that foot decided to exclude itself from the body. But we've got an important part to play. And if you're that person who thinks you don't have a part to play, allow me to correct you. Allow me to point you to God's word. Allow me to point you to what Jesus says. Um, Allow his Holy Spirit to come and speak clearly to you, to your heart, to come and give you an identity in him. Because actually, our insecurities are not rooted in God or in scripture, they're actually a lie designed to rob us from the joy and purpose that God had for us. And if you struggle with this this morning, it's really important that you take time to go back to God, to spend time with him and allow him to show you how much that you are loved and accepted and how much you're valued and what part you have to play here in the body of Christ. And the second thing that breaks unity is, in fact, the opposite. It's people who think too much of themselves. It's people who think they need special recognition or they're too important to do that, that job or too important to love that person. And this is a little bit like a hand that decides that he is superior to the legs. He wants to do everything that the legs were doing. And all you end up with is a slightly dysfunctional body walking on its hands. It might be funny, it might be amusing, it might have a place in a circus. But actually, do you know what? In this scenario, neither hand nor foot nor leg is doing what it was designed to do. And this sort of attitude can breed division really, really quickly. Okay? It's actually called arrogance, and it upsets lots of people. I've done this before myself but it robs us of the true pleasure of seeing how God values the people around us and how God values us. And again, it comes back to our identity in God. 
of understanding who we are and who he is. And again, the Holy Spirit can help in this area. He can tell you exactly who you are. And if we're all truly honest with ourselves, from time to time, we can be either one of these people. Because ultimately, our hearts are not perfect. And they can not be secure in our identity with him. So let's be united in our identity as children of God and as a family together. Don't do life on your own. Responsibility has purpose. In Nehemiah, the purpose was quite clear. Everyone was united together to rebuild the walls and maintain the city. And the Christian life is the same, really. It comes with a purpose. Jesus has commanded us to go into the world and make disciples of all men, to love the lost, to care for the poor. Jesus says, build my kingdom. Are we moved with compassion for the poor, for the lost, for the brokenhearted, those that are worn out, those that are beaten down, perhaps those that have been exploited or even terrorized? When we see a headline on the news about suffering, do we scroll on by or are we moved with compassion? We need to love the lost because Jesus loves the lost. We're invited to make friends with them, to live alongside them. And we need to be moved with compassion for the very things that move the heart of God. Just like Nehemiah in chapter 1 was brokenhearted for the people of God, so too should we be brokenhearted for the people of this world. What can we do? Who can we influence? Where can we share hope, love and care? Who has God put right before us? And how can we love them? How can we care for them? How can we share Jesus with them in the way that we live? It's regularly a subject of conversation with my children. It's how can we share the same love that Jesus has shown to us for those around us. We're all in circumstances where we encounter people who don't know the love of God. What can you do? What little step could you take? Are you drifting along aimlessly or does your life come with God's amazing purpose? Proverbs 29 verse 18 says that where there is no vision, the people perish. quite overwhelming, really, that without purpose, without vision, we'll perish. It's time to step up and take some responsibility. And then finally, responsibility is proactive. Vision and purpose are all well and good, but without action, they're just words and good intentions. For Nehemiah, the vision was very clear, to restore the city and bring glory to God. And the vision resulted in purposeful, undistracted action. The people recognized that there was a need and they were deliberate in meeting it. Committing to give their resources, their time, to give crops from a harvest that had not yet even been planted. 
It was going to take real effort from them. It was going to take commitment, sacrifice, hard work, and time. And in a similar way, our purpose, our vision, the very thing that God has called us to, is going to take, is going to require action, action in faith. And we've got a responsibility here to one another and to the church and to God. And there are some things that actually need to be done, like packing up at the end. Okay? There are some things that need to be changed. First and foremost, my heart needs to be changed by God. And there are some things that we're called to do that are brand new. Things that need starting. You know, it was a response to the financial crisis in this country that the food bank started. What a great opportunity for the church, the united church in the United Kingdom, to serve the needs of the poor by starting a food bank. What are the new things that we could do to serve the poor, both at a local level with our friends, and what could God be calling to us to as a bigger purpose? What's God calling this church to? What has God uniquely gifted you to do? What's, who are the people God's put on your heart? I, God reminds me at this point of the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, there was a man that had a need. And, peop- and good people, biblical people, people from the church, people that, you know, like us, had the revelation of who God was. They walked on by thinking someone else was going to take responsibility. You know, there are people in the world suffering, even now. There are people, there are children this week in half term that will have gone hungry because their families couldn't feed them and they weren't getting school meals because they were on holiday. Are we going to walk on by thinking someone else will do this? Or are we going to allow ourselves to be moved with compassion for those around us? We can't all start food banks, but we could volunteer at one. We could give into a church that is giving into uh, opportunities to protect people who need protection. People that don't have food on their plate. People that don't have somewhere to live. We've got opportunities, no matter how small, to give. And in Joshua 24, verse 15, it says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is that your desire? To be able to say, we did serve the Lord in our every moment with all that we have, with every breath, breath, we served the Lord. And to do that, our lives need to be in order. And I'm not just talking about clean and tidy. I mean drama-free, distraction-free. If I want to give of my money, I need some money to give. If I want to give my time, I need some time to give. It's not going to just magically appear. I need to make a plan and provision for these things to be able to give. And the same is true of our spiritual and emotional capacities. We can't give what we do not have. In the capacity of your life, have you left some to give to God in whatever form that may be? 
whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's spiritually to pray, have you left some spare capacity? Have you planned in capacity to give? Or are you living at maximum? Or worse still, are you borrowing other people's capacity to help make your life work? You know, we can find every answer that we need in God. Life is full of things competing for our attention. We need to be disciplined and focused in how we steward the resources and the gifts that God has given to us. We need discernment and wisdom to know what to do when. We need advice and support. And sometimes we need to be really single-minded to stay on task. Mim and I really love this church. We're so pleased to call this our home and our family. Uh, We love the example that we find here. We've been here for many years now. Um, You know, I was just thinking just this morning when I saw Dennis, did you know before I'd even proposed to Mim, Dennis said to me, you need to marry that woman. And I said, yes, I've got plans to. (laughs) That was some 12 years ago. That's the family that we're in here together. Just yesterday I had lunch with Jonathan and Angela. Just a really encouraging time just to share life with one another. That's the church, that's the family that we have here. Okay, we've got tremendous examples of people who give abundantly. Okay, people who give generously, well beyond what would be expected. People who serve one another. People who give of their time in the secret, in the quiet, without making a fuss, without any recognition. Thank you, guys, that you encourage us. You set a good example for us. Thank you for all the parents that have shown us how to parent so that we can set a good example for our children. Thank you for those that are patient when it goes wrong. Okay? Thank you for the encouragement because this is a great church family. And I encourage you, if you feel on the edge, get stuck in. Come and find out what this church family is that I'm talking about. Come and make a friend. Come and invite someone for dinner. Better yet, invite yourself for dinner. You see, serving can transform our lives and strengthen our relationship with God. As our focus shifts from ourselves to the needs of others, we experience God in that place. A few years ago, I heard a phrase that impacted my life dramatically, and it was this, that to love someone is to say, how can I help? As, as Don taught us uh, a while ago, that's really important in marriage, is to say to your spouse, how can I help? But it's also really important in life and in the church family, is to love the church, recognize the need, and say, how can we help? God, I love you, how can I help? Okay? To say to our friends, how can I help? is to love the world as God did and say, how can I help? We don't need to over-spiritualize this. We don't need to make excuses. It doesn't need um, months of fasting and prayer. If we're available and breathing, let's help. Okay? It's so important. If there's a need, let's see how we can fill it. Okay? It may well be we're the person God sent to help. It may be there's no one else that's going to get sent along to help like the Samaritan did on that road with the man that had been beaten. 
So let's be a people of absolute integrity whose yes means yes, no means no. And let's make choices in our life that allow for the serving of God's church and for the care of the world. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that simply means thinking differently. And it is possible, believe me. When I look back on my life, I was looking at photos last night uh, in preparation for this talk from 2004, from before Mim and I had even met. And looking back at what life was like then and what life is like now, can I tell you, my life is testimony to the fact that God transforms us by the renewing of our mind. He really can change the way we think. But, you know, at points it's going to require discipline. Discipline to think in accordance with what we believe and not how we feel. It may well take a single-minded focus. Even in the face of teasing, perhaps even mocking, or persecution. Sometimes our friends won't understand But let's be different. Instead of mocking, let's encourage. Let's love one another. Um, If the band could come up, please. You know, I understand that life can be really tough. I get that. I really do. Um, Most of this sermon, I've been preaching to myself, and I found it really hard to prepare this because it highlights issues in my life. There's regular times when I just want to hide under my duvet, a bit like Adam and Eve did when God discovered them after eating their fruit. But it doesn't really lead to anything when you hide under your duvet. The better response is to lean on God, to trust Him, to trust that our identity really is in Him and that we're secure in His love, that He will meet our needs, He will give us rest, He will give us joy. He will change our hearts and our minds to be more like him. Even today, he's changing us. And hiding on my own does not allow my friends to remind me of these truths and point me to Jesus. Please, please don't become lukewarm. Let's live with passion and hope. Let's be proactive in the life and the purpose that God has called us to. Let's be like Nehemiah, and in the face of great tragedy, let's stand up and take responsibility. Let's respond in his love for us. If we could all stand, please. Um, We're going to pray now together. Father God, we thank you that you are tangible and real. Father, we thank you that you are here with us this morning. And we ask, Lord God, that you would come and rest on each of us. Father, let us come and experience your love for us, your grace for us, your mercy. Father, help us to be secure in you, to know exactly who you are. And to come to understand that you want to seek us out and paint us into the canvas. The canvas that you're painting. The big picture of your redemption plan here on earth. 
Father, where we might have neglected our relationship with you, where we may have allowed disunity to form in our lives and in the church, where we may have been distracted from what you're calling us to, or just simply become lukewarm. Father, please forgive us. Come and comfort us, Lord, but come and call us into passionate purpose in you, Father. And Lord God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and root us firm in your word. It would speak to our hearts. Lord God, it would light us on fire with a passion for your name. Lord God, move us for you. Father, we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a song now that um, is all about...